0: Hello and welcome to the D2C podcast, I'm Eric Dick. Today we're chatting with Noah Home Furnishings founder Jeremy Kopek about his company's incredible growth journey that started with a $50,000 investment, a completely soiled palette, a clever international strategy, and a burning desire to reinvent how furniture is sold online. Listen to this podcast to learn why starting in international markets can be your best play, think 60% lower CPMs for starters, how Jeremy managed to scale to $20 with only 5 employees, how to create great unit economics for furniture, why a custom-built ERP has made all the difference for Noah's ability to maintain a staggering 4x ROAS on all ads, and also you'll learn how virtual consultations are the cherry on top of Noah's conversion funnel. Get comfortable, put your feet up, and settle in for another great episode. of with the show.
1: When we started the company, our first order consisted of a couple pallets of mattresses. And those pallets came to Singapore a couple weeks after we had started working on our website. And we had already taken pre-orders for a few customers. Those pallets came in completely soiled due to a typhoon that had swept across Singapore. I got the call from the warehouse in Singapore and I cried. I called the vendor that night, said, I've known you guys for a dozen years or so. We've built this relationship. I really need you guys to give me this second shot. We were their smallest client at the time. And today, I'm proud to say that we're their biggest client worldwide. I'm forever loyal and thankful that they gave us that second chance.
0: (laughs) Welcome to the D2C podcast, Jeremy. Can you start with the why as to why you built Noah Home?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. You know, I've been in the furniture business uh, for near 20 years, and I was previously at a company which I helped grow well over hundred million dollars. I was there and saw it expand across Canada to become one of the biggest furniture companies uh, that currently uh, operates there. And in 2015, I welcomed my first child, Noah. And I wanted to transition into something of my own. I wanted to build something of my own that, that spoke to me in an area of the world that I knew very well at the time. I was based in Singapore and in an industry that I love, which is furniture. And so in 2015, my partner at the time and I uh, saw an opportunity in the market to do something we love and, and pursue something that we felt would capture uh, the hearts and the minds of, of customers.
0: And now describe your growth journey uh, from 2015. I know you you went from a, a small investment to where you're at now. Can you describe that journey?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at the time I was based in Singapore and we saw an opportunity in 2015, 2016, wherein in Asia Pacific, there were virtually very few to none of any DSC type of brand. So the likes of Warby Parker, Glossier, Away, these are things that were not prevalent in that area of the world. That's number one. Number two is you have high e-commerce fluency in Asia Pacific, densely populated countries. And so my partner and I wanted to do something uh, on a bootstrap business. And we put in $50,000 and we launched Noah Home. Uh, again, named after my son. And that $50,000 was enough to buy, you know, a few products, a couple pallets of product and put up our website and, and launch. And in that first year, we sold a million dollars. And then in our second year, we sold three and then seven and then 13. And then uh, last year, we, we finished our year at $21 million in sales Having never taken any outside dilutive capital uh, up until this point.
0: So that was a six year journey starting at 50K and rounding off at 21 million and continuing to grow, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, and I I do want to mention to to the audience that we today are still only five employees. Uh, My partner and I managed the business up until about seven or eight million dollars of revenue, uh, just him and I everything from photo shoots to website design, purchasing and planning, finance, operations, just him and I managing operations across, uh, at the time, two countries, Singapore and Australia. And at the time, you know, we started to, to talk about the need of having a great team. So we started hiring a few folks and we're still five. And today uh, at the $21 million mark, we're still in Singapore and Australia, but also operating in the UK and in Canada.
0: Very cool. I want to know with a 21 million, five team members, I, those got to be some critical team members to only have five of them. <laughs> but I wanted to start first with this idea of uh, starting the business in Singapore. Um, can you talk about that decision? I think so many entrepreneurs think about, you know, okay, we gotta start in the US or start in Canada if you're if you're Canadian. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to, to start in Singapore and sort of what benefits that gave you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I touched upon this for a few seconds, but effectively, when we started the business, there's a few key factors for any type of D2C brand that I'm sure your audience is familiar with. You you obviously need product. Uh, You need a market that will respond to that. But you also need to have a sustainable acquisition strategy, right? And those dollars are critical. And $50,000 is is really not that much when you think about it. So one, having been in the business for for 17 years, I had key relationships in East Asia that virtually required no minimum quantities, MOQs. So we were able to buy a couple pallets of products to, to get to market and try that out. That was number one. Number two, we wanted uh, markets that had a lot of white space. So in North America or Western countries, there were well-funded, large incumbents within D2C furniture retail. And we just felt that we didn't have the strong enough pillars, so to speak, to to compete. And so what we saw was three things. One, uh, proximity to manufacturing and suppliers. Two, E-commerce fluency in markets that uh, in Singapore, Australia, look a lot like Canada, U.S., U.K., English speaking, highly densely populated, and an e-commerce penetration was high and growing really, really quickly. And then the third was acquisition costs. So in Singapore and Australia, again, in 2015, 2016, the cost of advertising on Facebook and Google was approximately... I would say 60% cheaper than in uh, North America. So effectively, our 50K could just go further in Singapore and Australia. And at the time I was based there uh, temporarily. So we felt that, you know, we had had a blueprint to start our
0: business and, and I think it worked out pretty well. I think the quantity thing is something especially in the furniture space must be something that would dissuade non-capital intensive uh, entrepreneurs in a way but to have those connections and be able to go below those those minimum quantity orders was a nice benefit for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, when you speak to founders starting any company of any type is is hard. Starting any company without capital even harder. And then starting a company without capital within like the hardware space or products with margins and freight and warehousing is extraordinarily hard. And obviously you could tell that I lost a lot of hair doing this, but I I loved what I, I did and, and do. And so the reason why the MOQ piece is so important is there's actually two reasons. So the first is obviously we didn't have the capital to buy that much merchandise. That's number one. And the second is this idea of, of iteration or experimentation. So what we were able to do at the very early days, and we still do this today, is we'll try products, we'll try new SKUs, we'll buy very few of them and our factories and that relationship, those relationships help in doing so. So we get to test the market really rapidly to see if there's traction or not, and then invest in purchasing inventory well in advance. Um, so that strategy holds to this day. And, you know, if I may, I want to share a story about, you know, just uh, the hardship of starting a business, especially a product based one. You know, Eric, when we started the company, our first order consisted of a couple pallets of, of mattresses. And in Asia Pacific, something that's quite common is typhoons, similar to hurricanes. And we got that first shipment and we couldn't afford insurance on cargo and ocean freight. And that, those pallets came to Singapore uh, a couple weeks after we had just started working on our website and we were about to launch and we had already taken pre-orders for a few customers. And those pallets came in and they were completely uh, soiled due to a typhoon that had swept across Singapore. These are products that were unsellable, that were wet, that were damp, the boxes were mangled. And... I got the call from the warehouse in Singapore, and and we did all of this remotely from Montreal, Canada, and and I cried. I cried. I called the vendor that night uh, from Montreal to China, <laughs> given the time difference, and uh, you know I said I've known you guys for the time it was you know a, a dozen years or so, and I said you know we've built this relationship of trust over so many years. I really need you guys to give me this second shot. Can you please? reproduce this order, uh, I'm begging you. And we worked out a way to repay them. And we were their smallest client at the time. And today I'm proud to say that we're their biggest client worldwide on the basis of them putting that trust in what we had as a vision. And uh, I'm forever
0: uh, loyal and thankful that they gave us that second chance. That's amazing. Any suppliers out there listening, take heed. uh, You know, when you invest in good customers, because I I guess at that point, you know, you had your reputation in the space. You'd worked in the space. You knew them before, but you you hadn't made any. You'd made some pre-sales. I guess you had that evidence. But really, it was them taking a chance on on you. I would imagine.
1: That's right. They were taking a chance on on myself and my partner, and and this idea that we we were creating something compelling within the space that would resonate with customers. And uh, I'm sure glad that. you know, they were there then, and they still are today. And it's really hard to find good factories, factories that make great products, great quality, deliver on time. It's hard enough to find them, let alone create these bonds where they want you to succeed. And, and there's a
0: personal connection there, too. So uh, we're, we're very lucky. So you mentioned this this incident happened when you were actually not in Singapore. I was curious, was it essential that you were in Singapore in order to start? I guess it helped that the factory was there. But was it essential that you be in Singapore in order to start off there uh, at, with your marketing efforts?
1: Yeah, so I used to, you know, I was in China or I, let's just say East Asia, the better part of, you know, four to six to 10 months a year for over a decade. So, I speak Mandarin, I was able to develop these relationships and I traveled extensively in the area, so I had a good pulse of these these countries. And Singapore, you know, is is this incredible country that's very much like ours in fact, in many respects more advanced if I could even say so uh, myself. And so, I've been there many many times before launching a business there is no different to me. Than launching a business from Montreal and selling in Vancouver. And so one of the things I would share with your audience and fellow founders is, you know, we all have taken risks. Uh, we've taken risks to start something that we love. Uh, we've put in the sweat, the tears, the excitement. Uh, if we're lucky enough, we have partners in our life that support us in doing so. And I believe that you know the world has flattened out, despite you know the challenges in, in the past few years. What a customer wants in Singapore for their home—a great mattress to sleep on, beautiful bedding to feel when they cover themselves, a great sofa—is no different than someone in Toronto, Ontario, or, or New York City, right? And so it's really about tapping into what people really want for their home, and understanding how to deliver a product that speaks to that. And I I don't see that Singapore is any different than. Any other country uh, that we could we could operate
0: in, except for the fact that it was at the time sixty percent cheaper, which gives you that ability. And with your factory right there, as you were saying too, that ability to iterate quickly to really dial in on the product market fit, uh, really make sure people loved it before you took on these like more hyper competitive markets. <laughs>
1: yeah so what's unique about the furniture space um so one it's it's highly segmented right it's not a winner take all market customers want stock they want availability they they look for style price point perceived quality things of this nature also customers typically will furnish their home from many brands right they'll buy their chairs from one brand their sofa from another and their mattress from from a third company so really what's important is understanding what customers really want. That's number one. Number two is they're looking for an experience and trust in the product they're looking for. And then the third is within the furniture business, customers have grown accustomed to lengthy delays and this idea of pre-purchasing products. So I'll give you an example. If you're moving or renovating, you'll typically buy, you know, home furnishings for several weeks, if not months in advance. So the idea of of concluding transactions or prepayments well in advance is how we funded our business. So we actually would pre-sell mattresses, sofas, three, four, five months in advance. And that's how we were able to fund our business is on the basis of these uh, these pre-orders, and this is really unique to our industry, I would say. Uh, it's not, you know, the same for beauty, for example, where you'll, you know,
0: you'll prepay beauty products for three months uh, out. <laughs> or highly customized ones. Yeah, you're not. You're not customizing. Or highly customized. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's something else that's really, I would say, unique about our thesis or how we wanted to go about building a new type of brand. So, in the furniture space, traditionally buyers are mandated to create these assortments, right? And so they'll have a budget, they'll attend trade shows, and they'll basically pick and point products until they deplete their budget. And they have various mandates by by category or or by seasonality or whatnot. But when you're renewing a collection by up to 50, 60, 70%, right? There's so much waste. It's it's a suboptimal kind of approach to developing product and and capital allocation, you have to merchandise this, you need to re-merchandise, liquidate, discontinue, uh, and then sell through all this inventory. Now, here's the kicker. Within the furniture space, Eric, timeless design, right? There's classics out there like uh, an Eames chair, for example. Something that's well-designed will sell just as well five years ago as it will today. So our whole approach was how do we build a modern home essentials brand? One where we have a curated assortment of products that are modular, that provide great value and quality, and that work in a small space in Singapore or the UK, or a large family home in Vancouver. So that was our thesis. We felt that if we could speak to that well, we wouldn't have to have this large assortment, right? And and that's how this iteration kind of began. So we would uh, start with a product or start with a category, and then iterate on the quality until we got it just right. And our returns were so low, and the customer satisfaction was so high.
0: Amazing. You mentioned your returns are—it's pretty common for you know industries ten to fifteen, even twenty percent sometimes. What are your return rates?
1: <laughs> yeah, so they're they're quite low. Um, Our fastest growing category for the past few years has been upholstery, Uh, sofas and things like that. Our return rate is under 2%. And then when you look at things like mattresses, uh, just a note for the audience, um, within the furniture space, the two largest categories or types of products that weigh that business is mattress and upholstery. And then you'll go into like dining and various types of other homewares. So when we look at upholstered products, it's under 2%. When we look at mattresses, now, given the, you know, the wave of mattress and of box brands around the world, you've seen return rates go up on the basis that customers now have more choice. And in some cases, they, they exploit, you know, these 100 night trial uh, offers and things like that. And you'll have, you know, based on public knowledge, you'll have mattress-in-a-box players that have return rates well above 15%. Uh, ours is uh, hovering around 7 or 8%, which is very low. What geos are you in today, at this date right now? So we're currently in Singapore. Uh, we're a market leader in that country. We're in Australia, which is a, an incredible consumer markets, very much like Canada and the US, I would say in terms of size, in terms of consumer preferences. And then we're in the UK and Canada. And so we're vertically integrated. So everything from product design, website, operations and customer support is done in-house. The only two things we don't do or we outsource is the manufacturing itself. So sourcing directly from, from various factories. And then the second piece is 3PL. So in our In our space, we can't ship sofas with FedEx and Purolator and UPS. We need to work with folks called White Glove, White Glove Service. So these are uh, specialized types of 3PLs, third-party logistics providers that do warehousing, pick and pack, and final mile delivery for the customer. And we do this in all countries. We currently are warehousing goods across seven warehouses worldwide, and we don't drop ship. So we're actually purchasing product in advance, full containers from around the world. Uh, We source from the U.S. Uh, in the Mississippi. We source from Portugal all the way through Vietnam, India and China. And these goods are are purchased in
0: advance and warehoused by our our partners. So this is to 21 million uh, with Run Rate For More without even tapping the US market yet.
1: That's right, yep. (laughs) And we're actually, you know, I would say we're under-penetrated in our current markets. Um, Again, you know, when you're bootstrapped and I'm sure a lot of folks listening in could, could relate to it, you have to make really hard choices I, there's so many products I'd love to sell and, and introduce to our customers. There's so many markets we'd like to expand into, but we have to focus. And and it's hard. It's really hard to do that. So we're currently and unfortunately not selling yet on the on the West Coast of Canada. Uh, we do very little on the West Coast of Australia as well. So, so much more uh, to, to, to pursue and dream of.
0: Hard to know where to start out. I was Googling that it was over a $500 billion industry, a half a trillion dollar industry. So sometimes you can probably be overwhelmed by the opportunities.
1: It's a huge industry. And, you know, you'll have the the, the international players like Ikea, whom no one competes with, uh, you know, in, in many regards. And it's highly segmented and locally concentrated. So what that means is you'll have a lot of local players that just sell in, one province or one state, let alone a whole country. You'll have a lot of players that only focus on traditional retail or other D2C brands that do just betting. And there's some phenomenal brands out there that have done great things in the past few years. So what's really unique is that there's so many categories to operate in alone and so many geographies. And so there's just a wealth of opportunity. And I think that you know our approach to this was never you know, market share in the pure sense of it? Or could we be top five is just, hey, could we build a great business that's break even, that's profitable, that customers love? And let's build on that. And let's listen and see how that goes. That's always
0: been our approach to, to it. And you've always fueled it with performance marketing. And that's something that you guys handle in-house. Is that what are you doing that specifically? Or do you have a team member for that?
1: So up until I would say one or two years ago, we did everything in-house, the creative. So I would I would hop onto Photoshop uh, or Illustrator and create the ads and my my partner JC would would run with that. And it just became unsustainable on the basis of the, the many countries we're in, the many categories we're in, and the, the many platforms that exist and you know we're running hundreds of, of variations of iterations right across Google, Facebook, TikTok, and beyond. So we began working with partners to help with that, with that process. But the key in our business has always been positive unit economics on the first sale. So this is quite different than a lot of other uh, spaces, right? You know, we don't traditionally look at LTV to CAC. We're profitable or break even on the first sale. Just to give you guys a sense of things, in Canada, uh, if I use that country as, a, as an example, where we sell predominantly sofas, our AOV, our average basket size, is close to $2,000. And so on that very first sale, we try to at least break even, if not hit profitability. And so the acquisition challenge and opportunity is that we have a high AOV. It may not be high frequency uh, for the same type of product, the key is creating a compelling experience, Eric, to get folks to purchase a sofa online. So that's really where my partner,
0: JC, our team, our partner excel at. That's really hard. It's a high touch funnel. It's a high consideration product. And it's something you, you, that people want to bounce on and sit on. So I'm curious to know, like, can you describe your funnel a little bit? How you've actually managed to create those touch points virtually? Yeah, so it, it begins with the product. Uh, fundamentally, if you have a, f- a fantastic product,
1: number one, that's differentiated, that has perceived value, and that has um, you know some form of uh, reputation that goes alongside it, whether it's referral uh, and, and all of that. I think that's. The fundamental basics that you need to have, right? Because ultimately, you could you could push all you want on a transactional basis, but you know it'll catch up to you. So we always wanted to have something quite compelling from a product point of view. Um, we then look at the website and have to create an experience on our site at noahhome.com that is uh, enjoyable, that is current. Uh, from an aesthetic point of view, from a UX point of view, whether it's financing, things of that nature. And then finally, the acquisition piece has to follow, you know, a path to purchase that makes sense. So, you know, folks don't see an ad for a sofa and then just click on it and then drop 1000 or $2,000. There's a path to purchase that, that, that goes alongside that. And so, you need to ensure that, you know, again, you have the right product, the right price point and so on. Then the reputation management comes in. So online reviews, various types of UGC that's being uh, shown from existing customers, uh, testimonials, things like that. And then what we wanna do is walk them through this path to purchase through an acquisition strategy that's compelling. So the funnel will, will begin with any number of digital channels, whether it's Facebook, Google, TikTok, Pinterest, or just organic UGC or organic search. Uh, Just a note for for the audience, we actually used to have a showroom in Singapore. And so the showroom was a great place for the touch and feel of furniture, of sofas, right? Uh, Unfortunately, when the pandemic hit uh, and, and lockdown measures were in place, First in East Asia, well before they came into the Western world, we closed uh, our showroom in Singapore and had to figure out, okay, what could we do to mitigate against this loss of a channel that is so important for high touch, high priced products? And that's where we got the idea of virtual consultations. So today we offer a a service, an experience called virtual consultations, which are free. And customers love this. We within the funnel. So at the top of the funnel, you know, you'll have your original, you know, first touch, whether it's on Facebook or Google or not. And as you kind of go through the middle of the funnel and lower funnel, we'll retarget you to book online consultations with our designers. And that gives the legitimacy and the confidence of a user of a customer to see a real person from our team and speak to a product that they're interested in. And the, I cannot emphasize how transformative that has been as within the path to purchase.
0: I bet, and I, and I bet, you know, in my experience with these things, when you when you get people on the phone when they're considering a purchase, their questions aren't rocket science. They, you know, quite often they just need someone to bounce their thoughts off of. Uh, is, is that what you guys find or is there a, is there a long consultation that occurs? Look, I think, you know, you'll have as many questions as you have
1: consumers, but but traditionally in our space, the most important thing is, is this available? So the furniture industry has been uh, historically plagued with stock availability, and it's even been exacerbated by the supply chain disruptions of the past year, where virtually or f- very few brands are able to secure inventory for Extended periods of time—it's really hard. And so the the question of is this available? How soon could I get it? Talk about the product, the comfort, things like that. So we've done a few innovative things. I would say in our space, virtual consultation being one of them, right? So we're not all designers, uh, interior decorators, and providing that that experience to a consumer is quite compelling. Um, again, it it speaks to that legitimacy. And then through that channel, if I may put it that way, we learn a lot. We learn a lot about what customers want. We learn a lot about the pain points and we try to address them like fabric swatches is, is huge. Everyone wants to, at the very least, see the color, the material and so on. So we send those out for free and uh, that's been very helpful for consumers. And we really walk them through any concerns that they may have. Now, another thing that's great is, you know because we do white glove delivery, there's also that high touch service, if you will. So we'll do mattress disposals, sofa disposals, and donate those to charities. So when you get a phone call uh, as a consumer saying, "You know, hey Eric, when would you like your delivery? Saturday between nine and 10 a.m. Uh, there's this level of trust that you start to build with the consumer. And that's really important within this experience, this process.
0: Do most of your sales now come through this consultative experience or are they sort of split between people that just say, ah, it looks good enough to me and they buy it? Or, or, or like wh- what percentage go through the consultation process? You know, a lot of folks still just like going
1: online, doing their own research, uh, trusting in reviews, the experience, maybe referrals. And that's been a growing part of our business, I should add, is uh, returning customers. So on the basis of low return rates, differentiated products, people are coming back. So, you know, we've basically doubled our business every year. We've also seen returning customers come back at a a high rate, uh, which, you know, I think validates, if I may put it that way, what we're doing. The virtual consultations, without providing a specific number, what they really do is they help the conversion more so than anything. So, you know, the customer who's undecided, who's apprehensive on the ticket or the features of a product, it's more of a conversion tool than anything else, I would
0: say. And so uh, that's that's helpful. So you mentioned your ad mix. I'm always curious what your what is generally your top of funnel ad mix right now between the players like Facebook and TikTok and Google and Pinterest? Like what, what does your split look like? Um, I mean, I would say Facebook, Google, take the cake to this day. Now,
1: one of the things that's driven our success is from day one, I built an in-house ERP. So what I mean by that is from a very early stage of our company, we knew the importance of data and analytics, and we obviously couldn't afford a, a robust enterprise level ERP. So we built our own. And that ERP served us in so many ways, not just from planning, forecasting, and buying, or customer management, but from an analytics point of view, from a BI point of view. And why that was so important, Eric, was that we never relied on Google Analytics or Facebook Ad Manager in terms of ROAS or anything like that. We were looking at our in-house data to look at actual sales that were made to look at the various costs associated to our acquisition channels, whether it's Google, Facebook, influencer or whatnot. And we would take that, consolidate it within one system and have our true acquisition cost, return on ad spend, media efficiency ratio, CPVs and revenue per users. So whether it was early days or even with iOS 14.5 and many changes that have occurred, The data that we were always looking at remained consistent on the basis that it was our data, it was our analytics. And so that was extraordinarily helpful. And so to come back to the original question, we still have, uh, we're heavily indexed in Google, Facebook, but we do a lot on Pinterest. Uh, We've been dabbing in TikTok, of course, as volatility on Facebook and other platforms has arisen. And we've done a lot of work with um influencers trade and hospitality so on the b2b side which i could speak to and you know things like white listing ugc is very important especially with our type of product so we're we're quite uh, diversified
0: across those channels online and definitely ahead of the curve with you know so many we we just been doing podcasts recently on you know the, the advertisers that we still run into that are kind of using they're kind of flying blind a little bit by using Facebook's on-platform numbers still. And so, you know, we triangulate between Shopify and Google Analytics and Facebook, you know, when it comes to our clients, but to have built out an entire, like, ERP system that kind of preempts this, it seems like a good move. And like, you mentioned in the pre-interview how sort of ruthless you are on your ROAS goals. Can you speak a little bit to how you've kept such a high ROAS on these uh, these channels? Yeah, so again, data has always driven every decision, whether it was changing the,
1: the, the density of foam on a product. So we actually monitor every return, every batch number, every country to really optimize on the product. And so being this obsessed with data is really important. And to those within the space, you'll know that Google Analytics data is not always accurate. There's sales that are missed. Uh, that are are potentially missing from the the platform. There's sometimes overages that don't really make sense. You look at Facebook sales that they're saying they led to that conversion and and whatnot. So really pulling everything into the ERP was critical. I have to mention that. For the first, um, please don't quote me on this, but on the first, I'd say three years or four years, our return on ad spend was anywhere between four and 600%. Again, this, this varies by month, by country, but consistently, uh, I would say even in the early days, it was like five to 600%. And now keep in mind, our AOV is really, really high. Now at a consolidated level, at, at a international level across all those four countries, our AOV is around a thousand bucks, give or take. And so our return on ad spend has hovered around four to six, Uh, consistently throughout history, including up until today. So now we're roughly at about four. Some weeks it's 500%. Again, it depends on the market. And the last year where we've seen our our return on ad spend uh, either shoot up or be under pressure, if you will, was stock availability. This was the number one factor that you know, impeded a strong ROAS. So effectively, you know, your, your return on ad spend is a function of what you're selling, what you're spending on on ads, right? But it's also the conversion rate. So when you're driving traffic to a site and, and you want that conversion rate to be as high as you, you want it to be, right? Well, when you're out of stock in our vertical, that's the difference between 0.5% on your conversion rate. And that's a dramatic margin, if you will, uh, on performance so stock availability has played a dramatic role on on uh, on performance
0: So you were a little bit preemptive with your ability to to track and have really strong attribution, which is awesome. But I think the other thing that's affected so many advertisers is just the retargeting funnel, losing um, your reliability on being able to retarget users who are already in your funnel. And I'm curious, for a product that has as many touches as yours does and is as long a consideration period as sometimes, have you found any big impacts to your retargeting strategy uh, since iOS 14.5?
1: I I typically, and my partner, uh, you know, we speak a lot about this. We never felt that, and this may sound controversial in some respects, but we never really felt that 14.5 dramatically had an impact on our business. What had an impact on our business was what I would consider the volatility that we saw in ad delivery on CPMs, things like this, but not the targeting per se so again because all the data lies within our own erp and now we're on a microsoft system using power bi and so data is live so we have live analytics and we get to see where our customers are buying from and and so on and so forth so maybe i'll take a step back and walk you through the typical path to purchase for furniture so flash sales don't work for us right again people don't you know see a ticker and want to buy a sofa or a mattress or bedding like within 48 hours. Not an impulse purchase, really. Exactly. So what's really important to us, and it's been the case since the beginning, was building trust. So for us, it's how do we build trust over time? And the typical timeline from first touch to purchase is about 7 to 14 days. Again, depending on the category and the country. So it's relatively long if you will. And so what we typically want to do is our ads creative is is really important, right? So you know, you'll look at your first ad, it's really about discovery, awareness, brand resonance, things of this nature. You're really trying to to tell the story of Noah Home, how we're authentic, how we're supplier and story driven. That first touch is really important. As you go through the funnel, there's a a multitude of creatives that are touching on virtual consultations that are touching on UGC or whitelisting. We've been doing whitelisting for actually quite some time. And that's really compelling in that, in that funnel. Right. And the ambassador program that we've launched, which is a way of working with affiliates and influencers has been extremely uh, helpful within, you know, within these channels. So, Really it's about creating trust during this time frame, Eric, to get the customer to finally, you know, arrive at a point where they're saying, hey, I want to book a consultation. Two, I have sufficient trust based on referrals, based on the reputation of this business uh, that I'm, I'm willing to take it in. And then the third piece, like, I would say it's like at the very last moment, Eric, is creating an experience that turns down the barriers within an industry that I believe has not innovated in in decades, right? So creating an actual return policy, that's fair. (laughs) You know, I think people are scared to buy a sofa and say, hey, I never tried it. How do I return it? What what happens? And so donating to charity, that's extremely compelling, that's something that Means a lot to me personally to do as much as we can by by products that uh, we take
0: back. So it's about creating that experience, that comfort in purchase for such a large uh, ticket. I think we'll have to have you back on the podcast here. We're just coming to the end, and I think we've just scratched the surface of you know you're our our first uh, furniture brand on, and I think I think there's a lot to learn. But our our stock question that we'd love to ask is if we were to give you uh, fifty thousand dollars, you're spending more than that uh, regularly. But if you had an incremental fifty thousand dollars to add to your marketing budget in the next month, where would you add it right now in the business to see the biggest impact?
1: I would actually have to say the consultations, innovating on the experience, um, not on you know pure acquisition of Facebook, Google. Uh, again, we're break even profitable not on, you know, a flywheel of influencer UGC whitelisting. It's really about how do we create something that's innovative, that speaks to the consumer in a novel way that our peers are not doing. And, you know, we got to where we are with 50K. And it's surprising what you could do with so little when you have the passion and the, the scrappiness, so to speak, to just do a photo shoot, uh, as we still do today. Uh, Maybe not wearing a dress shirt, but just putting on a regular crew neck and just doing it, right? So I think the virtual consultation, why? It's novel, it's interactive, it's engaging, and it's a conversion tool, right? We want to convert. We don't want to just put dollars in this black box and on the whims of the, the taxes, if you will, that some, some of the large digital advertisers put on us as founders, as DTC brands, not know where those dollars are going to go. The virtual consultation, I think, in our space on, on what we've seen would be the most compelling.
0: I love it. And I love just the way it plays in your funnel, how you mentioned that your creatives mention it. Maybe it's not the first thing you're, you're hitting them with, but as they go down the funnel, they become aware that it's something that's possible. Um, and then even you know, even building the influencer uh, content into there, it's, it's really just about giving people as many different kind of looks and options of a product to kind of make them feel confident. And I think the influencer content plays a great role in there as well, just to see other people enjoying the products. Like, oh, if that influencer likes it, that's probably good for me as well kind of deal. It sounds like you've thought out this marketing funnel quite well. Do you think you will try to conquer the, the U.S. at any point? Is that, is that on your radar?
1: We'd like to. Look, I, I don't think I'd surprise anyone in saying that the last few months or last year has been volatile, has been hard. There's been a lot of headwinds for all of us. And, uh, and I can't help but say to anyone listening that I'm, I'm happy to, to share any further insights if anyone wants to reach out to me. The other thing is my partner has played uh, an incredible role in in understanding the funnel, in understanding the the importance of building trust. There's never been more D2C brands, incumbents are are innovating in their own right. So really, I think what's been key is understanding how to build trust, how to do it in a novel way. And my partner and my my whole team has really been creative in that respect. You know, Eric, I, I wanna mention this, whether it was my past experience uh, at at another brand as we grew or at Noah Home, there's one thing that doesn't require money, creativity. There's always going to be players that have deeper pockets, funding and whatnot. But if you're creative, if you have a differentiated product or experience, you could compete. And on that basis, we'd love to enter the US. Uh, It's a large market. We've proven that we could open international markets from our, our home in Montreal, Canada. So we're confident that we could do that in the US and we're hoping
0: to do so uh, later this year. They won't know what hit them, I just got to say. Uh, you <laughs> mentioned uh, people getting in touch with you. How would you recommend that uh, our listeners get in touch with you if they're interested?
1: So email me, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, you know, starting a company, as I mentioned a, a while ago, is hard. And uh, there's there's a lot that we could learn from each other. Um, they could email me at jeremykopek K-O-P-E-K, at Noahome.com. I just want to support fellow entrepreneurs, folks that love the D2C space, and maybe learn from them as well. I, you know, I learned so much just speaking to other founders from other verticals on acquisition, on UGC. Unfortunately, you know, working with influencers is not as easy as shipping, you know, a mascara or apparel we're, we're selling sofas. Uh, so it's, it's not as easy, right? So learning from their
0: experiences is always really inspiring. So, uh, we have a lot to learn from each other. You certainly can't spray and pray in the same way you could with mascara where you could send out, you know, a (laughs) hundred, you know, a hundred mascaras, like you've got to make sure that your influencer relationships are dialed in, that, that it's, that they're a long-term partner, that you're sending them a $2,000 couch. Yeah, and that, that's maybe a conversation for another day, working with trade professionals and architects and, and so on.
1: But, but finding the right people to work with, bringing them into the ambassador program or, and affiliates is really key. Um, but it's tough. It's not for the faint of heart. You know, whether it's purchasing sofas, warehousing them or delivering
0: them, uh, it's, uh, it's heavy in many ways. Well, we will get you back on and I will also be looking up when I'm in Montreal. We may or may not be planning some events in the East there in the coming months. So I'll keep you posted on that. It's been a, a lot of fun, Jeremy. Thanks for coming on the D2C podcast. It's been great. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone listening. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at direct all one word, dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.